You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today is Max read out of Mark, the Palm Sunday story, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. I'm going to read out of John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. It says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. It's interesting that Jesus' own disciples here had no idea what was going on. These were his closest of friends. And the symbolism of this moment completely escaped them. And, and to be sure, this moment was packed with symbolic significance. Um, to, in order to understand the context of what's taking place, you have to understand that this scene actually is a repetition. This happened about 150, 200 years prior. And about, uh, about 200 years before Jesus, this exact same scene played out when the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem. You see, at that time, 200 years before Christ, the Greeks were the occupying force in Israel, not the Romans. And the Greeks had essentially tried to stamp out Judaism. They were trying to eradicate the practice of Yahweh worship, Judaism. They were desecrating the temple. They were, they were killing or imprisoning any parent that circumcised their child. They were burning scrolls, burning the Torahs, any, anything they could find. They were trying to eradicate Judaism. And uh, as it came to pass, uh, a father and son, Judas and Simon Maccabeus, two clergymen, I believe they were both priests, had had enough. And so they started an armed insurrection, these two priests formed an army called the Maccabees. Some books written about it, first, second, third, might be a fourth Maccabees, I'm not sure. Um, but that's part of the Old Testament in some Bibles, the Catholic Bible, you can find that. Anyway, so the Maccabean revolt occurred, and this was the first occurrence, uh, scholars believe, of guerrilla warfare. The first uh, recorded instance of guerrilla warfare being used um, as the Maccabees would do these asymmetrical, I don't know, like assaults in the middle of the night, small bands killing officers, these kinds of things. Well, they were successful. The Maccabees eradicated the Greeks. The Greeks left the Holy Land. And when it came time for them to march into the newly liberated Jerusalem and liberate the temple, Simon Maccabeus led the army. And as they approached the gate, the, the residents of Jerusalem came out, lined the gateway, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, which means save us, rescue us. Uh, the Maccabees entered the city, went to the temple, cleansed it of pagan artifacts, got rid of the, the, the Greek statues of Zeus or Apollo or whatever was in there, rededicated the temple, cleansed it and rededicated. This is commemorated every year on Hanukkah. Soon thereafter, the Maccabees minted a coin, and on that coin, they emblazoned the symbol of the palm branch. And forever thereafter, the, the palm branch symbolized God's liberation from foreign oppression by military might. Fast forward 200 years, this exact same scene plays out at the triumphal entry. Also, we call it Palm Sunday. The people line the, the, the gateway, waving palm branches at Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, save us, rescue us, is what that means.
And so the, the meaning is the same. The sentiment was the same 200 years before Christ with the Greeks as it was with the Romans. They were hoping, expecting Jesus to be a militant Messiah. You know, this was the week of the Passover. And so you had all, all the Jews from the country were flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. There was enough people in Jerusalem at that time to form an army and potentially overthrow uh, the Roman occupiers, at least in the city itself. They were hoping Jesus might do this. This was their eager expectation. Um, and yet Jesus refused to play this role. And so he rode into the city on a donkey. This is symbolically significant as well. In the ancient world, when a conquering king rode into a city on, on a donkey, it was a sign of peace and a, and a sign of the end of war and conflict. However, if a conquering king rode into a city on horseback, it was a sign of more war and violence to come. Jesus rode in on a donkey. This too was completely misunderstood at the time, as our text says. It wasn't until after he was gone that they came to understand these things about him. And here we find the lesson of Palm Sunday. Part of it is that Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom, a literal, physical kingdom of power and might, but a symbolic, spiritual kingdom of love and grace. Let me say that again, because it's so important that we get this. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus' kingdom was not a literal, physical kingdom of power and might, to capture a land and hold it, violence or whatever, but a symbolic, spiritual kingdom of love and grace. The lesson of Palm Sunday isn't just that people misunderstood this, but that they crafted the God they wanted to see in Jesus. The lesson of Palm Sunday is not just about this misunderstanding, but the very act of idolatry. We have, you know, creating the God we want to see. It is about the dangers of idolatry, the dangers of creating gods in our own likeness. And we all do this, to be sure, from one time to another. I believe it was Voltaire who once said, God made man in his image, and we have never stopped returning the favor. <laughs> it's true. So this is the lesson of Palm Sunday, it's, and it's quite different than the lesson most of us grew up with, to be sure. I, I don't know about you, but I grew, up, I grew up being told that the lesson of Palm Sunday is that we need to invite Jesus into our hearts the same way that the people that day at Jerusalem welcomed him into the city, or that the lesson of Palm Sunday <clears throat> is that we need to worship Jesus. We need to adore him and worship him and, and say Hosanna to him, right? Because he's worthy of our worship, like the people at the gate that day. You know, we need to worship Jesus. The lesson of Palm Sunday is not that we need to invite Jesus into our hearts so that we need to worship God. The lesson of Palm Sunday is about idolatry and our tendency towards idolatry and to craft God in our own likeness. Um, this is symbolic, this this. The fact that we must stop our idolatrous incantations of God is symbolic of what the kids did this morning by exchanging their palm branches for olive branches, exchanging a symbol of, of power and might and violence and idolatry, <clears throat> excuse me, for a symbol of peace, a symbol of the spirit, a symbol of the symbolic, you could say. This is what we all must do. We all must learn to let go of our idolatrous concepts of God, our anthropomorphic ideas of God, the ways that, that we project onto God, unconsciously, usually, our, our desires, you know, our dreams and goals, our hopes that he might be this, you know, material savior that liberates, liberates us from life's problems, life's Romans, right? And, and we must end this kind of idolatrous relationship where we project onto God in particular, 
our religious and political convictions. Jesus' contemporaries were certain that th their God um, shared their political convictions, that the, the God personified in Jesus was anti-Roman and would liberate them from the Romans. They, they believed that God wanted to make Israel great again. They were even selling hats down at the temple that said, make Israel great again, MIGA. Oh, good, you got it. They, they believed God wanted to strengthen their borders, <clears throat> right? They believed God wanted to purge the, the people that didn't belong out of the land, get rid of the, the, the Samaritans, let's get rid of the Gentiles, get rid of the Romans. They believed God wanted a strong Israelite military, one that could obliterate the Romans and anybody else that ever got in their way. They believed God wanted a strong temple system with a, with a powerful and influential clergy. And yet, that's not the God they got in Jesus, is it? Instead, the God they got in Jesus welcomed Samaritans and Gentiles and Romans, and, and he welcomed the strangers and told us to do so as well. He critiqued the temple and the religious authorities, guys like me. He, he denounced physical violence and told people to love their enemies. He rejected the identity of a militant Messiah uh, that his contemporaries were, were trying to foist upon him. He rejected their idolatrous views of him. And to be clear, it was not just a theologically idolatrous view of him that they had, but a politically idolatrous view. And here we find a timeless truth. And politics and theology often come packaged together. In fact, I would go as far to say there is no such thing as a non-political theology. There is, no such a, there is such a thing as secular politics, okay, but there's no such thing as a non-political theology. And by politics, I don't mean Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal here. Those are certainly identity markers that we use in our political context. But by politics, I mean the, the complex way we as individuals in a society relate to each other in, these, in the economic system, the legal system, and, and in culture. And theology is political because at its core, theology is always a definition of reality that includes moral categories like right and wrong, good and evil. These moral categories define how we should live with each other and look at each other, how, how we should relate to each other, and what kind of society we should set up. A theological worldview, especially the ones derived from the sacred texts like the Bible and the Quran, always come prepackaged, preloaded with a set of political implications. Let me give you an example, a very popular one today. If somebody believes that the Bible says that marriage is to be between a man and a woman only, and therefore no other definition of marriage is valid, this is not just a theological point of view, right? This has political implications. This is not just a theological claim. This is a political claim to make because quite often was that it changes the way people vote, and if you're an elected official and you believe that, that you have this theology of marriage that says it's between a man and woman, one man, one woman, that's going to change the way that you govern. That's going to change the way that you legislate. There is no such thing as a non-political theology. It comes prepackaged. And, and the confluence of politics and theology is on display today perhaps more now than ever before. And the fact is, 80-some-odd percent of white evangelical voters voted for Donald Trump. This is actually the largest percentage of white evangelicals voting, voted for a president. This is more than the, the amount of white evangelical voters that voted for Reagan or even Bush Jr., who himself is an outspoken evangelical. 
The fact that more white evangelicals voted for Trump than any other president in U.S. history, a man who is arguably the most antithetical president ever to what we would call evangelical family values, th th this is astounding. This tells us all we need to know about the intersection of religion or theology and politics, about the confluence of politics and theology today, and how idolatrous it can be. When evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. say things like, he is the dream president, and that, to quote them, God's hand intervened in getting him elected. This is a textbook definition of idolatry. But to be clear, and to be fair, we progressives, and by we I mean more than myself in this room, <laughs> my guess, I know there's more, um, we're not immune to doing this thing as well. We're not immune to idolatry and casting God in the image that we want him to be in in our political convictions. There are certainly Christians on the left who believe that if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a, a registered Democrat or an outspoken socialist or Marxist. I cringe every time I hear such arguments, not just because they're idolatrous and meant to put, you know, the God stamp of approval on our political affiliations, but I cringe because it presupposes that God is a being on high who is making such choices. Like, he's, he's up there voting for Trump or Clinton or Sanders, and he's got these convictions, and that we can access this information. This is a bizarre thought to me. And to me, that's like suggesting that God is uh, in a March Madness bracket. You know? I guarantee it's broken because God knows everybody else's is. It's kind of a bizarre thing to think and to say. <clears throat> so I think Christians on both the left and the right get wrapped up in idolatry, and those of us on the left need to acknowledge that. As a way of highlighting this point, I want to read uh, a Yelp review this morning that we got a few weeks ago here. Um, nice. You know this Yelp review? Have you read it? <clears throat> that, makes, that makes one. Some of you are like, oh no, he's going to read that. Um, sorry, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm clearing my throat a lot. Uh, this person who wrote this review came here last month during our, our Voices series where we featured a variety of different Christian LGBTQ activists. And uh, they attended on a, on a Sunday when the guest speaker was doing, doing a fair job ridiculing Donald Trump. Um, and this is what they wrote on Yelp. This church attempts to come across as open to all, um, but, I, uh, but I felt otherwise. The speaker claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but used his sermon to bash and judge conservative-minded individuals and to make white people out to be evil. Rather than focusing on the teachings of Jesus, he pointed out all the ways liberals are better than conservatives. I want to be part of a place that brings people together, not dividing and casting out. Moreover, I've been to several other churches and never noticed such an overt political bias that steered away from the teachings of Jesus while making individuals feel unwelcome and judged for having a different point of view. I debated whether or not I should read this today, but, you know, it's on Yelp. It's a public forum, so. And uh, then I thought to myself, are we not a church that invites critique? Are we, do we, are we not a church that always talks about a need to practice critical self-reflection and deconstruction, and are we not a, a community that talks about being open, right, to such things? So I thought this is it's the perfect time to read this, and um, my first reaction to reading this review a month ago was, oh, it's so unfair. How could she say those things? This is just the first time, you know, visitor. Obviously never been back. Maybe she's here today. I doubt it. <laughs> It'd be really uncomfortable. Um, and then I, I talked to Max about it, 
because I was saying how unfair this was, and he's like, eh, okay, but not really. <laughs> he's like, I mean, what did she say that was really that incorrect? And I was like, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. And, you know, we, we intentionally go and get guest speakers that are thought-provoking and controversial, and their ideas do not necessarily reflect that of anybody else but themselves here. Um, but the, the fact is, I think we do sometimes come across here, like we're saying that, you know, Jesus was a leftist, he was a liberal, he was a Democrat. Uh, and if you don't agree with us, you're on the wrong side of the political spectrum. We don't say that, okay? Obviously, we don't say that. But let's be honest, it's the way it sounds sometimes, right? It can come across as idolatrous. It can come across as, a, as just as idolatrous as anything a conservative pastor or conservative church is saying. So we have to own that. But to be clear, there's a subtle and important difference to, you know, criticizing a politician or a political party um, and saying or claiming that God endorses the exact opposite. There is a big difference to standing up here and criticizing Donald Trump and saying, you know, that God endorses Clinton or Sanders or, or anybody else. There's a big difference there. I can't even imagine saying such a thing. It, to me, it's it just the assumption that God even makes such choices and I can somehow access that information is a bizarre one to me. And so for me, the dilemma over what political positions I should take or who I should vo vote for is not solved by asking myself, you know, what does God think or what, what does the Bible say? And that, that's a key difference now. That is a key difference now between the way I... I approach politics now in the way that I approached it when I was a conservative evangelical in, in my 20s. And it's funny, when I was in my 20s, as a conservative evangelical, I was actually part of this, this Christian rock band that we named Buchanan after Pat Buchanan, the conservative political pundit, who was also a candidate for president in 1996. Okay, it tells you how old I am. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we're at. We, we firmly believe that God endorsed Pat Buchanan. And that it was our job as Christians to rally behind him and get other people to rally behind him as well. So we formed a Christian rock band called Buchanan. It lasted for about three months. <laughs> we were horrible. That's the point. But that tells you where I was at, right? Um, I mean, I, I, I assumed back then that I knew God's position on a host of political matters because, you know, the Bible talked about women's roles and same-sex relationships and even welfare. I mean, I used to quote Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, which says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That was what I thought God's position on welfare was. You don't work, you, do, you don't eat. Which, of course, makes no sense if you read the Gospels. But, you know, I had a savvy answer for that, I'm sure, a way of explaining that away. So I no longer think that way because I've come to believe that the Christian approach to politics is not defined by the question, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible says a lot of things. But rather we should ask, what is the path of love? Which actually is a very Christian thing to say and a very biblical thing to say. Romans 13 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus in Matthew 22 said, all the law and the prophets, all of scripture is summed up in these two commands, love God and love others, and you can't practice the former without practicing the latter. First Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. We could go on and on, but the point is, is that love is the Christian approach to politics, not the question, what does the Bible say? And that's a subtle but important difference. And the people at the Jerusalem gate that day, waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna, thought that they knew God's political position regarding the Romans because they knew their Bible. 
They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Torah. They knew all the stories of God liberating them with military might from the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, dozens of Canaanite tribes that they decimated and eradicated, the Greeks. Their, their whole Bible is one story after another of God showing up as a weapon of war in, with the Ark of the Covenant, right? Remember that? They used to march with the Ark. God's Spirit helping them slaughter anybody who got in their way. This was their Bible. Of course they thought that they knew God's political position regarding the Romans, but they couldn't have been more wrong. They couldn't have been more idolatrous. The Christian approach to politics is not, what does the Bible say, but what is the path of love? And more specifically, what does that mean, the path of love? It means asking ourselves the question, what is best for human well-being and human flourishing? That's the love question. What is best for human well-being and human flourishing? I'm borrowing those terms from Sam Harris. This seems to be the question that animated Jesus and that he believed should animate us, not what does Leviticus say? God help us if we're consulting Leviticus in, in our approach to politics. And I think if we're honest about answering this question, what is best for human well-being and human flourishing, we'll agree that things like sexism, racism, homophobia, religious intolerance, that these things are not best for human well-being and human flourishing. Individuals and societies that are entrenched in these modes of operation tend to be deeply repressive and unhealthy societies where people's quality of life is horrible. When we make love the highest spiritual and political idea, when we make optimizing human well-being and human flourishing you know, the, the main political idea, we're not only in the best position to solve our social problems, but as Christians, I think we make idolatry irrelevant. It just doesn't even come into play. I'm not saying that God still doesn't become a projection sometimes of our, of our desires or our convictions, but because that's unavoidable to some degree. What I'm saying is that if our concept of God is that God takes himself out of the equation— and calls upon us to take responsibility for our lives and world and for each other, and to ask ourselves, what is the path of love in the context in which I'm living? That's inherently a non-idolatrous position, I believe. Again, if our concept of God is that God takes himself out of the equation and says, you are called to live responsibly, you are called to take it, you are called to ask yourself this question, what's best for human well-being and human flourishing in the context in which you live? It's no longer about trying to divine what, what the Bible says from the Bronze Age and how we can make it happen here and now. No, it's about how do we, how do we live together in a way that's best for as many people as possible? How do we optimize human well-being and human flourishing? Idolatry then becomes irrelevant. It's interesting that Jesus was never asked, nor did he ever state you know, his position on the Roman occupation. When asked about Roman taxation, how did he respond? Uh, he said, famously and cryptically, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. A classic Jesus answer, which is really a non-answer. If you, if you look carefully at it, it's a non-answer, but it, no, it's actually a really good answer. You get it. And yet it was assumed that he was against the occupation, just like any good Jew of his day was, right? It was assumed on Palm Sunday, he's against the occupation. Um, and yet we know that he rejected the role that they had for him. 
We know that he rejected this role of political revolutionary. And yet, in that way, he kind of became a political revolutionary, right? You see that? By calling us to take responsibility for our lives and for each other, for our world, by asking us the question of love, by asking ourselves the question of love. What's best for human well-being, human flourishing? What does it mean to love my neighbor? That's the Jesus question in the context and the time in which I live. It's not a Bronze Age question. It's a relevant contemporary first, 21st century question. It's, it's, it's a timeless question. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Simply put, the lesson of Palm Sunday is that we shouldn't try to make Jesus president. I mean, how many times I've, I've heard Christians say, Jesus for president. I've even, I think I owned a t-shirt once that said Jesus for president, right? Or put on my Facebook profile under political views, Jesus for president, right? You know, and actually there's a, a Shane Claiborne book, Jesus for President. You guys know who Shane Claiborne is? You know, famous Christian leader on the left. Great man. I'm not denigrating him in any way. But Jesus made it clear that he didn't want to be president. Jesus made it clear he didn't want to be president or king. In fact, trying to, our desire to make him so is part of the problem. That's the problem on Palm Sunday. Trying to make him king and president. When he says, I don't want to be president and king. I want you to take responsibility for your life, for your world, for each other. Stop asking me to do it for you. Grow up and learn how to love. These are the politics of Palm Sunday, in my estimation. And this is symbolized in the Lord's Supper, a sacrament that we practice here every week. Here we find the body, the symbolic body and blood of Jesus. And by receiving that into ourselves, it is a, it is a declaration that we seek to become God in the world. Not in some kind of weird idolatrous way, but in a, in, a, in a way of giving ourselves fully over to the world as Christ did. We seek to become Christ for each other. And you serve this sacrament to each other every week as further a symbol of what it means to embody the politics of Jesus that we become Christ for each other. We take responsibility in the world. As Bob was talking about, the social actions that we take, we take responsibility. We take action. We become God in Christ in the world, the body of Christ. These are, the, these are our politics every day of the year, not just Palm Sunday. And this morning, I'm going to have Andrew Bocock come forward now. Um, Andrew, you're going to help me serve communion before you read your poem. But um, as part of... The meditation today over communion, Andrew wrote a poem about Lent. And as you might know, Lent is the time, the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. And so we want to encourage people to share things like this. And Andrew wrote a, a poem about his Lenten experience and thought it was appropriate as a communion meditation today. Um, so listen to this as you receive the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's pray. Loving God, we commit this time to you this sacrament, this symbol of what it means to be your people. May it become more than just a symbol, but a way of life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, communion here is gluten-free, alcohol-free, and free and open to all who wish to come to the table of Christ. I was drawn to these pictures. The colorful, pretty sweet, 
and the gorgeous, juicy red meat. Unable to focus, I closed my eyes. This is no escape. The invisible menu awoke inescapable desires. Want became need. And so goes my Damascus road. I now believe in the everlasting nourishment and satisfaction once again. Let us consume the living wine. The people who lit my path sit in shadow, but their eyes glow. They did not promise, but they still made me believe. Either or, they barked, insisting that the cocktail would destroy me. All I could hear was subtext, a layered meaning that wasn't there. I will be the first. I will overcome all odds and stand atop my own Everest, even if it kills me. Yes, I will die with the most toys, the richest cake, the most satisfying steak, but most importantly, the best looking smile. You will all remember me, won't you? Oh Lord of quenched thirst, you keep turning my wine to poison and your crafty words protect you from all blame and all wrath. The scale broke upon my ambition, my cartoonish eyes feeding my bleeding belly. The conclusion fell upon this lone self, which took all that the doctor ordered, but long before the prescription was filled. Selah. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. mentioned uh jesus not wanting to be uh president king uh what do we do with the titles bestowed of king of kings and the lord of lords that's a good question so again jesus came saying using the language of kingdom right my kingdom is not of this world right my kingdom is not my kingdom is within you he said, right? So there still is this notion, this, this cultural construct of leadership, of kingship still with Jesus. But we're talking about a spiritual, symbolic kingship, not a physical, literal, you know, this is why I'm, for me, the second coming is about us actually becoming, you know, Christ in the world. 
Not, not this idea of Jesus returning with a sword in his hand and slaughtering the Antichrist. This is the, the, what I grew up with, right? And, and us marching on Jerusalem and establishing his throne physically on the Mount of Olives, and from there we'll rule the universe for a thousand years. This is all symbolic language for me now of what it means for us to actually become the people of Christ in the world and this idea that uh, Christ's love conquers. So for me, it's symbolized. It's symbolizing this idea of us becoming the embodiment of his kingdom in the way that we live in relationship to each other. Yeah. I think Jesus did that all by himself too, by the way. I'm not even, I don't even feel like that's that liberal to say, this idea of understanding his kingship that way. Yeah, sir. Uh, thank you for the service. Uh, my question is, how do you learn to love when uh, someone hurts you and the sore of like pain and the deep cut of betrayal is very difficult because you have to l learn to let go because hatred is never the way to deal with stuff. But uh, how do you do it when you've already given that person a second chance before and you saw those red flags? You know, how do you deal with that level of the betrayal and that pain that person caused you. And, you know, I know that God was with me during those tough times. And when I would just tell myself, you know, no matter how hurtful the person was and how mean that person was, that God has a future for me. And the idea that compassion and empathy, unfortunately, wasn't with that person. And that person turned people against me and did a lot of nasty things, you know, and that I'm still dealing with today as far as, you know, with my, my health, you know? So how do you go about that, you know? Because it's like learning to, when you, you have, I, I think that God put in my life, like my therapist and people that were in my life for a reason. And my doctor, my therapist told me to like, let go of it and forgive her. And forgiveness is part of it, but it's so hard to forgive someone when they act in, cru in cruelty, you know, like they're very cruel and, you know, you wouldn't wish your worst enemy death, but this person kind of put me in that place, you know? And how do you, how do you learn to, because I'm doing what's right for me and finding that peace despite the mess and despite all the turmoil, you know? How, what, what do you think, and it's kind of hard, you say like, we always ask God what to do, but it's in the act of like loving people and just being open to people and being respectful. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I, I think, think we all can think about circumstances in our life where somebody has deeply wounded us and broken trust. And by going back and this idea of forgiving them and trusting them again would just open us up for, we're just gonna, just gonna do it over and over again because they're abusive, right? That's not okay. You, we can't live like that. And that's not what I mean by love. I understand. Well, these get to be pretty complicated questions. What, what's your name? Shant? Thank you for being here. The, yeah, those, those, those are very, in each circumstance is unique. Does that make sense? So there's not a one-size-fits-all answer I can give, like, here's what you always do. But in short, man, you know, I like this idea of love as that, which is, you know, what is best, asking the question, what is best for human well-being and human flourishing? And to be perfectly frank, being in relationship with abusers is not what's best for human well-being and human flourishing for them or for us. And so I think, you know, you got to look at the individual circumstances. Bob, did you want to respond to this or only because you're standing there and you look like you might want to? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> this, is one of my, this is one of the things I'm super passionate about. If you don't know this, my fiance is a therapist, so I feel like my life is a perpetual therapy session. Um, 
she's going to hate this when she hears it. <laughs> um, now, I thank you for your question. And first of all, I think um, maybe I'm a little biased because of my experience uh, in therapy and dating a therapist. But therapy is something that everybody could benefit from. Um, and like, there's no level of brokenness that requires you to be at for therapy to be something that's helpful. Um, but especially with what you're talking about, I think you're asking a really good question. And forgiveness doesn't always look like, like Aaron said, what, what we expect it to. Um, for me, I think the really important thing is um, in a call to love other people, we can't love other people if we're not able to love ourselves. And so part of what therapy is, is developing self-care and understanding how to love ourselves so that we can then love other people. And so in the midst of brokenness and relationships, health and healing doesn't mean that relationships look like what they used to. Sometimes forgiveness looks like the breaking and severing of a relationship. And so, and, and I'm, I'm happy to, to continue to, to speak with you um, um, afterwards as well. Um, but I just think that that's, it's, it's a good question because what love looks like is really, really difficult. And if we truly want to love, I feel like we need to come out of a place of really loving ourselves. And that is complex and difficult. I just wanted to say on that issue too, I, in my opinion, I think... Love is always about the long game. Um, like, you can be with somebody and think, like, oh, okay, well, I'll feel better if I'm with this person now. But if you start to, like, realize in the long term that this relationship, for example, isn't going to be good for either of us, it's not going to bring us, make us grow as people and love more in the future, then that's not love. It's infatuation, basically. And I think that love is always about um, prioritizing the ultimate well-being of a person, not just their immediate well-being. So I think that's what I was going to say.